0: Please take your Bibles and turn in them for the last time as a Sunday morning study to the book of Mark, chapter 16 and verse 8. As we wrap up our study of Mark this morning, after 15 months, 56 sermons, Alistair Begg took 86. (laughs) About 250 pages of preaching notes and well over a 1,000 hours of study preparation, we come to this. What an incredible blessing it's been. What a gift from God to our body. I pray you personally have grown through it, especially in knowing Christ even better, loving him even more, and devoting yourself even more to him and to his purposes and his mission for you. Just a few quotes that we looked at along the way that I would remind you of now. Spurgeon's, if we were greater students of God and of Jesus Christ, how much happier we would be. And then two from Dane Ortland: almost all of our thoughts about Jesus, and I might say all of our thoughts about Jesus, are too small. And the Christian life is a lifelong shedding of wrong understandings of God. But maybe most poignant is the question that Jesus posed to Philip that night, the Last Supper, when they were, Jesus had just promised uh, that he's going to prepare a place, and Philip is concerned about how they will know to follow him. And Jesus asks him this question, have I been with you so long? Have I spent so many hours pouring myself into you, and yet you still don't really know me? You know, so little, you understand me, so weakly, yet, uh, convicting, but good challenge. Because it's not just a matter of believing and liking what you read and see about Jesus in Mark. It's about encountering him as a person and believing in him and all that Mark tells us that he did, particularly in his life and death and resurrection so that we might be both saved by him and sanctified by him. We are all on a lifelong quest as followers of Christ to know, understand, love more deeply, and live more fully for him. I would just remind you that this is why we exist as a church. Our theme verse, so to speak, is Colossians 1.28. That opens with Christ we proclaim teaching and warning so that in the end of all of these Sundays investing in you and all of the weekdays in between we might present every one of us every one of us mature in Christ Jesus that's our prayer our longing I pray that Mark Will be used by God toward that end. I also just want to insert here as just kind of a, another dimension of thinking of studying Mark to, together. Our missionaries in Israel, uh, Aaron and Rebecca Nathaniel, have published, uh, where's Ben Forey? He's up there for Sunday school. There you are. 100,000 copies of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. And Ben spent close to two weeks, week and a half, just walking this very land that we see Jesus walking in, distributing the gospel of Mark with the prayer. And we want, I want to encourage you to join in that, not only to pray that Mark will continue to shape you, what you learned from the book of Mark, that it will continue to shape our body, but that God would use this gospel account of Jesus over in Israel as literally tens of thousands of this gospel are being put into the hands of Jews and others. Pray that some, by God's grace, would find Jesus Christ to be the Messiah and their Messiah. So last Sunday, we culminated our study with Mark 16:1 through 8, which is what we might say is what we are more sure that Mark wrote himself, verses 9 to 16, as you probably have a note in your Bible about, we have less confidence. And so we said last week we'd at least get through verse 8 and then deal with the controversial or debated ending of Mark here and think about two possible endings, verse 8 being the ending or verse 20 being the ending. So all of this together, we'll just title Jesus' final 40 days on earth. His final words that are so critical, and then his going to glory mission completed. And our little five points that we'll kind of break into is just talk about whether verse 8 is the end or not, whether it's the last sentence that Mark penned, and then four sections of the remainder part of Mark. Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, his final words that we know of as the Great Commission, his ascension and coronation, which are in one sentence described, and then in a one-sentence transition toward the book of Acts, the beginning of the rest of the story, the next phase of God's plan and mission. Lots of scriptures from outside of Mark today, partly because this whole section is in brackets. We'll talk a little bit more about that after prayer. Um, And... Not all of them fitting on slides, so it'll call of you a little more listening, perhaps a little more leafing through your pages, so get ready. I may have bit off more than I can chew this morning. Father, this final glimpse of your son, even though we don't know as certainly who wrote this section, but this final glimpse of his ministry and mission here on earth, that incredible mission that he did 2,000 years ago still gives us so much glory about him to see and behold. So again, through your truth, whether it's here in Mark or through other scriptures that support these, please deepen even more a final time our appreciation for Jesus Christ and for the gospel, deepen our awe of our Savior, Deepen our awareness in contrast of our own sinful ways, ways that we live fearfully and stay way too close-mouthed, and deepen our love for you, for what you have done, and for how you love us as you put us on mission. Please use this final pondering of Mark powerfully in our lives for your name's sake, we pray. Amen. Amen. So, cases for and against, verse 8 being penned by Mark. We do not have the original manuscript, the original single copy that Mark wrote. Uh, We only have copies that were copied from that copy and passed down. And generally, those copies are very consistent, remarkably consistent. Maybe word differences, maybe a line or a phrase difference, Uh, maybe a line inserted or not in there. But the last part of Mark has this whole clump of about 12 verses that are more indecisive about that. So the great majority of copies of Mark, manuscript copies, the great majority of them include this ending, verses 9 to 20. But the two earliest closest to the original that we have copies do not so there's all kinds of theories Uh, something happened to Mark that he got interrupted and somebody else had to finish it for him and maybe he dictated it but it's certainly a different style than the rest of his writing Uh, did part of the manuscript get torn off and somebody else found it and put it back on later Like there's lots of theories we're just going to go with uh A little bit of logic here and and just wrestle a little bit. So many scholars, many commentators, many pastors and preachers stop their preaching of Mark at verse 8. Two other of our coalition churches, uh, my pastor brothers, when they preached through Mark, ended it at verse 8. Alistair Begg did as well. In fact, his last sermon was an entire 35-minute sermon on why verse 8 is the ending. (laughs) The commentator you maybe heard me quote the most throughout this study, David Garland, spent 20 pages of his commentary on why verse 8 is the end and not one page on the rest of the verses. So I'm I'm not in very good company to go into verses 9 to 20. Uh, I do think verse 8 is the end, at least of what Mark penned. And mostly because of the difference in some of the style and some of the, even if you get into the Greek a little more, some of the word choices and some of those things. But also because it seems very consistent with the way Mark has handled so many stories. Like the fact that he didn't even include the birth of Jesus. He just jumped right into John the Baptist and then he barely spent any time on things like Jesus' baptism or his time in the wilderness or hardly any parables that he impacted. Like Mark was very singular focused on the things he wanted to bring out about Christ as the Holy Spirit moved in his heart to do so. Um, so I think verse eight is a fitting ending that Mark would write and be content and put a period and be done. It is a powerful punch on a big theme of his from very early in the pages of Mark. And that is man's fear of Christ Jesus when Christ exuded power in particularly spectacular ways. So just reminders. uh, back, Back to the other slide. From Mark 4, the first storm on the sea when Jesus was asleep and they woke him And he said, peace be still, and the wind and the waves stopped. And there was an incredible calm. And the first words out of Jesus' mouth are, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And the description Mark gives us of the disciples is, they were filled with great fear. One chapter later, the woman who had the bleeding disorder for 12 years that touched his garment, when Jesus asked for who touched him came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and he pronounced to her daughter your faith has made you well later in Mark 5 when Jairus daughter uh, dies the ruler of the synagogue and everybody tells Jairus he doesn't need to bother any Jesus anymore and Jesus says to him do not fear do not fear even that your daughter is dead only believe And when the demoniac came back to his right mind and he was sitting there beside Jesus and they were talking, the disciples were afraid. That one's not up there. Mark 6, another storm at sea. This is when Jesus comes walking on the water. They see him. They think he's a ghost and they're terrified. Even when he says to them, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. They were utterly astounded and their hearts were hardened. And then in Mark 9, when the disciples couldn't cast a demon out of a boy, and then right there on the spot, the demon threw the boy down, and he started foaming at the mouth and writhing. Jesus responds, O faithless generation, how long do I put up with you? And then when the father asks if Jesus would show compassion on his boy, Jesus says, If I can? All things are possible for one who believes. And then says to the Father, The Father says, I believe, help my unbelief. So you can see the ending of Mark fits right in with that same emphasis and theme that Mark has been pretty consistently putting up. As Alistair Begg put it, there's a violent struggle throughout the book of Mark for humans between hope and fear. So now, David Garland's thoughts on this, again, contending that this is the ending. And this is a little longer, but I, I hope helpful for you, a real application point. In Mark's gospel, the fear is always man's response to the breaking in of the power of God as he shows his power and majesty as the Son of God. Humans have been deaf and dumb to God's glory throughout the story. You can go all the way back through all the Old Testament. Why should we not expect this same reaction when these women meet with the most powerful divine act of all jesus resurrection from the dead then a number of pages later into his commentary the ending touches on the problem that fallible humans must live with failure the way of discipleship is not always i know there's verses that say it is a triumphal procession but we don't always live it out like that through the world like a hot knife cutting through butter it's a way packed by or pocked by personal failure after personal failure We must learn that with God, our failure is not fatal. And then one more from him. Discipleship is established by Jesus' call and can only be sustained by God's mercy and power alone. We can take comfort from this fact when we also fail in our commission, as we inevitably will. Everything depends on God, not us. When we succeed, and I would insert here, we often measure success by results. Like how many people got saved? But when it looks like there has been spiritual success, we can only give credit to God. So perhaps the biggest lesson for some of us will be right here in this example of the women that comes way too close for comfort to our own fear and failure to speak up for Christ when there's a cost. Now, on the contrary to verse 8 being the ending, there are cases that are made for verses 9 through 20 being included as a legitimate part of Mark's account. It's very possible that some scribe along the way felt verse 8 ending there was too incomplete, too short, not triumphant enough, and attempted to give a fuller ending by looking at the other gospel accounts, perhaps, and adding it in. At some point, there actually is very little in verses 9 through 20 that are different from the other three biographies and even from the book of Acts other than for a few phrases or pieces of thought. So we'll do what we've done all along and that is note not just what Mark says or what this summary says but also what the other gospel accounts tell us as well and we'll just use these verses 9 through 20 as an outline for doing that. And let me just insert before we dive into verse 9 as well. Don't let this uncertainty about these 12 verses rattle your confidence about all of God's word. Certainly critics can come at us about something like this and try to make it as a bigger issue. But it is remarkable, remarkable how similar down to the details... And all of the thoughts that all of the copies of the New Testament have. And this is just a particular area, along with a section in the Gospel of John, in the last part of verse chapter 7, in the beginning of ver- chapter 8, that you'll see these same brackets, another section where we just don't have quite the confidence, so we include it, but we note that it may not be the original author's words. So, verses 9 to 14... Mark gives some post-resurrection appearances. Um, So we noted some of these last week, so I'll try not to to dwell on them too much, but just try to put them together. Uh, We noted that since no one was believing the angel's announcement, no one was believing the empty tomb meant a resurrection, they thought it meant a theft of a corpse, and I might add, no one was looking at the Old Testament promises that he would not remain in the grave. Christ, or Jesus, chose to make appearances even before the announced plan to see them in Galilee, to show himself to them then, to spend final, a final 40-ish days together in sweet fellowship. So, Last week, we noted some of this, and I think verse 9 refers to what we looked at in John chapter 20. We read it already about Mary being there and Jesus standing there. She thinks he's the gardener, um, asking her why she's weeping. And then when he says her name, she realizes who it is, and he says, do not cling to me. I've not yet ascended to the Father. We'll see that here by the end of Mark. But go to my brothers, tell them I'm ascending. To my father and your father, to my God and your God. And so verse 10 seems very similar or referring to what the very end of John chapter 20 referred to as well. That she went and told those who had been with him. A second appearance doesn't show up in Mark, but we noted it last week. It either is a separate second, second appearance or in some way the other women become Uh, involved in this appearance as well and there Jesus has a little different conversation after greeting them. Uh, They came up took hold of his feet and began worshiping him and he said don't be afraid go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. So at this point it still sounds like that is the plan but we're in that first hour or two or three when they're first figuring out the tomb is empty. And the response that Mark tells us in verse 11, or whoever wrote this ending of Mark, I'll I'll probably not remember to say that every time, but you can have that little phrase in there, is verse 11, that when they heard he was alive, even when the women told him that it wasn't a stolen corpse, that they had actually seen him, the sad response is they would not believe it. Or as Luke put it, these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So there seems to be, in verse 12, I think captures it, either this second or third appearance of Jesus, this time outside of Jerusalem's walls to the two disciples, um, one of which is named Cleopas. We don't know who the other is for sure. Uh, All kinds of theories abound, but Jesus shows himself, shows up walking beside them suddenly, and they are talking about the radical events of the morning, and uh, they recount all of these things and then Jesus says to them, O foolish one, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then as the well-known line, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scripture the things concerning himself. They arrive at the destination. They, they invite Jesus in for dinner He takes the bread, blesses it, and when he does that, they see the Last Supper replication, realize their eyes are open, they recognize him, and he vanishes. And they now realize that their hearts were burning because it was Jesus himself explaining himself in the Old Testament to them. And they go running back the seven miles, uh, uh, almost a half marathon, go running back to Jerusalem, burst into the room, where the disciples have uh, huddled up and tell the rest, and this is Mark 16, 13 now. And once again, the sad response is, but they did not believe them. So Mark 16, 14 seems to capture the first appearing of Jesus to the 11. Afterward, and we know that it's still that same day uh, by um, John chapter 20, verse 19, right here. Uh, we'll see John's and Luke's. I'm going to read to you John's and Luke's accounts of what was said when Jesus first made an appearance to them. In the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Oh, they're starting to believe. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So we have the first hints of the Great Commission, even here in this first appearing. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And then Luke tells us, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. They were startled, frightened, thought they saw a spirit. So he said to them, why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet, and while they were still disbelieving for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. So now they believe because Jesus mercifully reassured them without making them wait until going back to Galilee. Alfred Plummer proposes an interesting thought here. Perhaps God did this so that these disciples would understand how hard it is to believe other people's eyewitness accounts of the risen Jesus. Jesus. Because in Acts 2, Peter's going to be preaching that and talking about a resurrection. But here, they are experiencing what it's like to hear others give that account and don't really believe until they see Christ himself. Perhaps it does something to how they'll share the gospel. So an incredible ending to a first day from dawn till well after dusk. But they are reunited with their Lord and Savior. Now, the next event Mark tells us about, or this ending in Mark tells us about, is the Great Commission. But Matthew, John, and Luke, and even a little bit of Acts, tell us a few other things. So let me just touch on those things so you get a full picture of some of what's taking place during these 40 days. Even though we don't have a ton of information about them. Acts 1-3 tells us that Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. We know from 1 Corinthians 15 that he showed himself to at least 500 people. We're assuming up in the Galilee area and that he would appear during the 40 days and speak to them often about the kingdom of God. Matthew 28 ends with the 11 disciples went back to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And he just leaves it at that. And then last week, we noted Jesus' particular uh, appearing to Thomas about a week, eight days after that first Sunday night appearance. Perhaps they're back in Galilee by this point, where he comes, shows Thomas, encourages him to put his hands in his side and in his, and in the marks in his hands. And Thomas believes and says, my Lord and my God. And then John chapter 21, the entire chapter is devoted to things that took place in Galilee during those 40 days. And I'll just remind you, we don't have time to look at all of them, but it's when the seven disciples are fishing. They fished all night, haven't caught any fish. Jesus shows up on the beach, says, throw your net out on the other side. They catch 153 fish. And then shortly after that, Jesus and Peter have what seems to be a private conversation where Jesus asks him three times if he loves him. Peter, with increasing frustration, saying each time that he does. And Jesus emphasizing each time then what that will love will look like. Here's how I want you to express love to me care for my lambs, tend to my sheep, feed my sheep, and establishes and reinserts Peter as a profound voice in the establishment of the early church. Back to Mark here, uh, or the accountant Mark, verses 15 to 18. Toward the end of these 40 days of all that whatever is taking place in Jesus' final teaching, we see Jesus bringing his whole mission back full circle. So Mark 1, 14 to 15, and we've used verse 15 at least three dozen times, I think, through our preaching of Mark because it just encapsulates the main call for response of the gospel so well, where Jesus started proclaiming throughout Galilee that this time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand in his coming to earth, and everyone was now to repent and believe in the gospel in order to be saved. Well, now we see Jesus taking that same thought and handing this mission off to his disciples as he prepares to leave the earth. And so his charge to them is the same charge that he fulfilled from the Father as he came into the world, go into all the world. And here now for them, it's don't even stay just in Israel. We see Paul and Barnabas particularly begin that in their first missionary journey and then others as well, Silas and others who really began to take this, basically was a call, leave no nation unturned. This is not just for Israel, not just for Jews. The heart of God is for all people to know of his son and the salvation that is offered. Don't just go to people like you. Don't just go where it's comfortable and easy. Find every human being you can wherever they are and proclaim the gospel. Explain it. Share it. Tell them. There are no human beings for whom this is not relevant and important information. Everyone needs to know who Jesus Christ is, what he has done, and why it is absolutely critical that people believe in him. And verse 16 is going to explain that in just a little bit. Now, we have three other versions or chargings or commissionings that are all worded a little bit differently, probably because Jesus was reiterating this on more than one occasion, So Matthew's is probably the best-known Great Commission wording where he specifies the goal of going and proclaiming is to make disciples, make followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, I avoid the word Christian because it means so many other things now. But people who will give their lives to following Jesus by faith and love and trust and make disciples of them and then baptize them Mark them out as belonging to Jesus as they embark on a new life, which is 2,000 years later, what we're still planning to do in a couple of Sundays. And then for the rest of their lives, teach them the whole counsel of God so that they will live God-exalting lives as lights in the world's darkness. And then secondly, Matthew 28 promises Jesus' presence and power that's not noted in Mark's account of the Great Commission, but in Matthew's account, that everywhere his followers are carrying out the commission, Jesus promises his presence and power will be with them. And we will be reminded of that even this Saturday afternoon as we think more about sharing that gospel. Luke tells us quite a different account, but equally encouraging and convicting. There Jesus says in Luke 24, 44-49, These are my words that I speak to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. There's the core of the gospel. And that, and here's the response, Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. He reiterates, you are witnesses of these things. You are the first ones I'm handing this baton off to. Testify to my life, my death, and my resurrection. And behold, there's more. You're not going to do this alone. I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, and that is the Holy Spirit to dwell in them and empower them. But stay in the city. In other words, go back to Jerusalem, wait for the Spirit to come, which we see them do in Acts 1. And then you'll be clothed with power from on high. Acts 1.8 repeats that great commission again, summarizes it, where Jesus said right before he left, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea. And then he adds Samaria, enemy territory, and then he adds to the ends of the earth. Let me just add here that I think next week, Lord willing, we'll spend more time thinking about God's heart for all the nations to know of his son and both its Old Testament and New Testament emphasis. And I don't think that Mark wrote this ending, but if he did, this is kind of a neat thought. That he would pen this great commission and then he would be on the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. (laughs) taking the gospel to other places. All right, verse 16, or this section of Mark here, this ending adds two things that are different from all the other accounts. One is an explanation of two possible responses to the gospel in verse 16, and two eternal realities that are determined entirely by each individual's response to the gospel when it is proclaimed to them. So, first of all, whoever believes, any sinner who hears the true gospel realizes their sinful and lost condition, and in faith turns to put their trust in Christ and his work to save them, and is baptized. And we have to be extremely careful here. Baptism is not part of what God requires for someone to be saved, belief alone saves. It's an internal regenerating of the heart. But being baptized is an external testimony of that cleansing and renewal. They will be saved. But whoever does not believe, whether it's a passive reaction, I don't really want to deal with that today. Doesn't really, I don't think, I need to explore that more somewhere down the road. Or active rejection. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard anybody say or believe. It doesn't matter. It's the same result. Condemned. Forever. These words are remarkably similar to John 3, 16, 17, and 18. Listen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, not in his first coming, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, Jesus told Nicodemus. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. 2,000 years later, that truth and that reality and this verse are still absolutely true and unchanged. Is there anyone here not believing entirely in what we have seen of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Mark? Won't you turn now while you can? For Jesus, as loving as he is, is also holy and just and makes it clear. No one, no one gets in by any other way. Not good works, nothing else, except for believing in Jesus Christ and what he has done, what we call the gospel. Now, Mark didn't write this. John did toward the end of his gospel, but it's so fitting. There's lots more stories. We could, could, in fact, John will later say, there aren't enough books in the world to record everything about Jesus, even from his ministry, earthly ministry. But what has been written here in the Gospel of Mark, as well as in John, as well as everywhere else in Scripture, have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The second ending part here of the Great Commission, verses 17 and 18... Add some evidences of the authority and power, even though Mark doesn't attribute here, or whoever wrote this, to the Holy Spirit. These are clearly, as we look at the book of Acts, the marks of the filling of the Holy Spirit and the empowering of the Spirit to take the gospel out. So, it's casting out demons, the ability to speak in new tongues, the ability to pick up serpents and not be killed by their bite, Drink deadly poison, have it not hurt you, and lay hands on sick people and see them recover. Certainly not every time that there is a need for those things, but whenever God wants to empower in particularly powerful ways for the gospel to go forward, particularly in dark, hostile, evil places, he will exude his people with even this kind of power. Remember what Jesus said in John 14, 12 to 14 at the Last Supper. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And I would remind you also, I don't have it on the slide, but back in Mark 6... Jesus sent the 12 out. Luke tells us there were 70 of them Jesus sent out in pairs to all kinds of communities throughout Galilee. And they went out and they had authority over unclean spirits. They proclaimed that people should repent. They cast out demons and they anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So these, these thoughts are not necessarily brand new to these disciples, but reminders that when you take the gospel out, You are going into front lines, battlefield of spiritual warfare, and God will sometimes use incredibly supernatural, powerful ways to allow his gospel to pierce the darkness and the oppression of the strongholds of the evil forces. Fourth and fifth points in four minutes or so. Verse 19 is noted, Jesus' ascension... And then, once entering heaven, coronation. So besides the ending, this ending in Mark, Luke is the only one who writes about this ascension. Matthew and John stay silent, intriguingly, about it. But Luke tells us that Jesus led them out as far as Bethany at the base of the Mount of Olives, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them, and then he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshiped. And returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. And then later, Luke in the book of Acts in chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, he tells us that when they had said these things, when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him up out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood beside them in robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? And then the promise is this, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And then Mark is the only one to add and sat down at the right hand of God, which is the fulfillment of Psalm 110 verse one. Uh, and it's a demonstration of Jesus being given a place of honor, of power and ruling and authority, of all things being under his feet is the way that Psalm one ten puts it. It's a position of intimacy at the right hand of the Father and of favor. It's a position where we now count on him to intercede between the Father and us at what is called in Hebrews four sixteen a throne of grace. Spurgeon says of this, He who was once despised and rejected by men now occupies the honorable position of a beloved and honored son. The right hand of God is the place of majesty and favor. And then he goes on and applies it to us as believers. Our Lord Jesus is his people's representative. When he died for them, they had rest. When he rose again for them, they had liberty. When he sat down at the Father's right hand, they had favor and honor and dignity. The raising and elevation of Christ is the elevation, the acceptance, and the glorifying of all his people. For he is their head. And representative here is how heaven looks at and honors Christ Jesus and how we need to also what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2 first of all describing in verses 6 to 8 that Jesus set aside all the glory he could enjoy as God and emptied himself and took on the form of a servant and was born like us and then humbled himself ultimately becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then, we know from Mark, rose from the dead, and now when he ascends, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And he remains to this day in that exalted place of glory and honor, awaiting the day that he will then return and finish out setting up his eternal kingdom. And then finally, verse 20, and it appears, none of the other accounts describe this, but certainly the whole book book of Acts does. It almost looks like a one-sentence summary of the book of Acts, Uh, We do know from Acts 1 that they first spent about 10 days in prayer as they waited for the Holy Spirit to come. And then in Acts 2, bam, the Holy Spirit comes, empowers them, and they then begin to do what verse 20 describes, fulfilling the great commission that Jesus just gave them back in verse 15. They went out, preached everywhere. The Lord worked with them, only now in spirit, not bodily, and confirmed that message by accompanying signs. And the rest of the New Testament, the Acts, and all the letters of the Apostle, all become about pointing to this Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of all. Incredible book. Incredible study. What a privilege we've had to go through it. What a Savior Jesus is. What a work of God in providing this salvation. So what are the most powerful lessons you will take away from Mark. What will you continue to meditate on? How will God continue to shape and mold you? What are the biggest lessons you learned about Jesus as we studied him these last 15 months? Have you grown in your faith and trust and reliance on him? Have you grown in your worship of him? Have you grown in your appreciation of him and what he has done? Even as we just sang earlier, may we come and behold him. May we stand in reverence, may we bow in reverence, may we confess that Jesus is Lord. May we continue to grow in our awe, our love, and our devotion to this great God, our Savior. Father, how we thank you for the book of Mark. Thank you for preserving it. Thank you for the power of it. And I pray, God, that it will not be the closing of its working in our lives today but that you will continue to take what we have noted about Jesus, your son, through all of these pages and that they will keep being pressed more deeply into our hearts and into our lives. Please, Lord, continue to make us students of Jesus who learn more about him, love him more, and live more passionately for him. May what Jesus came to accomplish be lived out in our lives and in this church. Until he comes again for us, we pray in his glorious name, amen.